Amen. Thanks, David. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. I did want to correct something David said. He said, fathers are awesome. I think, I think that's a pretty hasty judgment. Some fathers are awesome. I think Hitler had children, so I don't know what David is saying there. So, <laughs> so we come to a story today. In fact, Genesis is uh, a lot about fathers, right? Fathers that aren't always awesome. Again, David, <laughs> with hasty judgments. So we come to a story that's really about fathers. Jacob is a father to 12 boys. Those 12 boys, each father, a tribe of the nation of Israel. And you know, again, it's like we're supposed to feel warm and fuzzy about fathers on Father's Day, but it's not always that pleasant. Um, and uh, so I'm going to apologize to Ryan. Um, th- I mean, thank you for I, I, one of my favorite things about preaching is that I get to just worship and Ryan does a wonderful job. <laughs> I, I uh, wrote the, the liturgy, our readings for this week, and I let him know, you know, it's a bit odd We're gonna, in our assurance. Like, so I made him say all the names of all the tribes. And so that wonderful picture of the end where all the tribes are there around the throne of God worshiping and then there's this unnumberable, um, uncountable number of people, that is us, the Gentiles who've been brought in are also there worshiping the Messiah around his throne. And this, this wonderful vision of people from every tribe and tongue and nation is what God has promised in the end. We get that from John's revelation. Uh, but we don't see that in our text today, where we see these brothers divided against each other and hating each other, wanting to kill each other. So our text today begins with a dream. Joseph has a dream, and then it ends with Joseph being carted off to Egypt. So we see that in the end of the book of Genesis, we'll see that God uses these, these terrible events to save his people. And at the end of Genesis, Joseph says, I just imagine him with a big grin and all the joy of seeing his people saved from this famine. He says to them, God sent me ahead to Egypt. But as we study this passage today, we don't see Joseph saying, God is sending me on to Egypt. Everything's fine. He's thinking, what in the world is God doing? And so as we study this passage today, I I hope and pray that we will be encouraged that at any point between the vision that John has given us of worshiping around the throne with all of God's people and the fulfillment of that vision, it may seem that we are headed in the wrong direction. And yeah, I'll confess to you that it seems like we're headed in the wrong direction. So I'm sure that all of you have your Southern Baptist uh, Twitter, your Google alerts for Southern Baptist News. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a joke. Uh, I know you. But, but some of you may be more tuned in to the uh, Southern Baptist News, and some of you may not care at all. Um, but you don't have to be to tell that this vision of all tribes, tongues, and nations gathered around the throne it doesn't seem to be what we're witnessing now, where brothers and sisters are harshly divided. It seems like we're headed into a moment of exile, that God is sending us to wander in the, into the desert. But as we'll see with Joseph's brothers, those who fight against the plans of God actually end up serving them in the end. May it be an encouragement to us today. So my point is that God knows jujitsu. Uh, I don't know much about jujitsu, but I know that it involves taking the force of someone else and working it to your own, your own gain. Any jujitsu experts? Taylor, no? I expected you might. Okay. <laughs> so let's get to it. We've been working through the book of Genesis together since um, forever, I think. I, I don't remember what we did before Genesis. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a long time, but... Today we come to the final section, and so Genesis is organized um, along these five sections, and they're marked off, the sections are marked off by this phrase, these are the generations of, 
So there are 10, there are actually 11 times, but once uh, marks the same section. And so there are 10 sections marked off as the generations of someone. And so today we come to the final section, the, ge- the generations of Jacob. So our text begins this way. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So I just want to make one quick point about this, that these generations of is all about their children, the sons of that person. So this section on the generations of Jacob is all about Joseph, primarily. And we see this, this is consistent. The generations of Terah is all about Abraham. The generations of Isaac is all about Jacob. And so this may seem odd uh, for us. But in, in a, to a Hebrew listener, a Hebrew audience, it would make complete sense where um, lineage and heritage and family was an important part of how they understood themselves. So we come now to this last occurrence of the phrase, the generations of Jacob, the last section of Genesis. And it's a story that many of you will recognize from Sunday school. Joseph and his coat of many colors. Let's get into it. So let's start with, uh, this is 37, chapter 37. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. Let's read verses 2 to 4. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Belhah and Zilpha, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he, made him wear, uh, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we remember as we read this that a major theme all throughout the book of Genesis has been favored and unfavored wives and children. So remember that Jacob himself was a not favored son of his father who preferred his brother Esau. Jacob loved Rachel and did not love Leah. And now we see that he loves Joseph more than his other sons. This is a generational pattern that we see again and again all throughout the book of Genesis. So let this remind us that God has attached himself to this family. His name, his glory, his plan for redemption, he has attached to this family of Abraham And we're reminded here that it is not because they deserve it. It is in spite of their flaws. So we see, as we've been reminded over and over, that favoritism, jealousy, deception are traits of the family. So in this passage, Jacob looks just like his daddy Isaac, who plays favorites with his sons. So Jacob doesn't just favor Joseph. He makes sure everyone knows it by giving him this coat of many colors. Well, all right, so actually, as I was doing research this week, I found out that in the Hebrew, it doesn't actually mean coat of many colors. I was kind of bummed. <laughs> How many of you guys grew up with, like, going to Sunday school, and you had these felt cutouts of people that went on the, the they stuck on the board, and Joseph is wearing this many-colored robe? Really, so in the Hebrew, uh, it means a, a, an ornate robe. So somehow, this robe marked out Joseph as special, but... In the Hebrew, we don't actually know what marked it as special. So it could have been color. It could have been length. Um, sorry, to, sorry to burst that bubble. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty upset by that. Somehow, this robe marks off Joseph, Joseph as a special son, a favorite son, and all of his other brothers can see it. And it reminds them that he's the favorite. In, in wearing this robe, Joseph is just rubbing his privilege in the nose of his brothers. You can imagine this dynamic, right? Joseph is 17 years old. You know who likes 17-year-old boys? Other 17-year-old boys? And their mothers? <laughs> boys in their 20s, maybe 30s, as his, brother, all his older brothers are probably annoyed by 17-year-old boys. And so you can imagine the eye rolls and the snarky comments between the older brothers as Jacob would approach. And then we read about this one day, Joseph brings a bad report to his father about his brothers. 
just adding insult to injury. So if they were annoyed before, they hate him now. And we see that the eye rolls and the snarky comments start to turn into rage and plans of murder. All right, let's see what happens next, going into Genesis 37, 5 through 8. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were bringing sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So I like to read this as like Joseph is totally naive about his brother's hatred. And he just goes to them, he's like, guys, I had the craziest dream. We were gathering in the, the wheat from the fields, and all of a sudden, my sheaf stood up, and all of yours bowed down to me. That's weird. What do you, <laughs> what do you think that means? And that, that's conjecture. The Bible doesn't say that, but I, that's how I like to read it. And, and the brothers are just gnashing their teeth. Joseph is asking for trouble. Let's keep reading. It says, Then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Like, whoa, (laughs) Joseph. The sun and the moon and the stars are now bowing to Joseph. So I was just imagine if someone you know posted something like, like this on Twitter, you would write them off as a complete narcissist. But of course, he doesn't mean the sun and moon and stars. The 11 stars are his brothers. The sun and moon are his mother and father. And that's really clear from the father's interpretation. Uh, Jacob understands. He says, shall I and your mother bow before you? And we have to acknowledge at this point, this is an odd statement because Joseph's mother died giving birth to his younger brother, Benjamin. And there are a couple of ways that we can interpret this. Uh, One commentator that I read says that he's referring to Rachel, his mother who died in childbirth, as, as a way of speaking of Joseph's greatness and importance in their lineage. So his mother and father bowing to him signifies that he will surpass their greatness in their family's story. That's one way to read it. I like that way. So I want to stop here for just a minute and talk about dreams. There are a lot of songs that I could sing that I'm not going to sing. You're welcome. Like in the phrase, it literally says, like, he dreamed a dream. Uh, So in the ancient world, dreams were believed to come from the gods. They were significant and they were meaningful. They carried a lot of weight but what about our day? So I thought about this, this a lot this week, and I was trying to think, what is our culture's relationship to dreams? And the more I thought about it, the less I could come up with a coherent view. So I think many would assume that there's little to no significance to dreams. They're just a psychophysical phenomenon. They can be explained and manipulated by science. And I think others have a more mystical approach, that dreams may be signs that that signify something that comes either from God or the ever-popular universe that may speak to us through our dreams. It might come from your inner self. You see this view of dreams often in romantic comedies. So I don't know uh, what you might think about dreams. I, I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition. In that tradition, we prayed for dreams and visions, and it, it, wouldn't, it would be normal to hear someone say, let me tell you about this dream God gave me. I've had a few dreams in my life that seemed significant at the time, but anyway, my guess is that many of you, some of you at least, have never had a dream that you thought was significant or might have come from God. It might not even occur to us to think that God would do something like that. So I want to point out a couple things from this text that we can learn about dreams. The first one is that God can and does speak to his people through dreams. 
So Christians, I think, in our modern world act often like materialists. We act as if all that could account for our dreams are our just crazy brains mixed up with um, our fears and hopes and maybe our diet and our Enneagram number and our birth order. You put all these things together and boom, out come our dreams. And sometimes that may be all that accounts for them. I've had dreams that I hope have no meaning. (laughs) But I do think that we should pray for, ask God for dreams, knowing that God may actually speak to us through dreams. We should, when we have dreams that sort of wake us up and we think, what does that mean? We store them away. We ponder them and we listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, not because, this is important, not because we had a dream or that we want to be led by dreams, but because we're open to the possibility that God may just speak to us through dreams. Secondly, God will give us more to go on than a dream. We see in this passage that God gives Joseph two dreams. The second dream confirms and expounds upon the first the main point that I want to make here is that we have to use wisdom in interpreting dreams. So dreams shouldn't be in the driver's seat of our life's decisions. A dream that seems to come from nowhere and confirm nothing may just be a dream. So I want to tell you a quick story. I had a dream once that I moved to Nashville and was planting a network of house churches In this dream, there was like a whole philosophy about the gathering and what it would look like for these house churches to come together. There was a website all about resourcing the network churches. I mean, it was a crazy uh, detailed dream. And I woke up from that dream and I immediately started shopping for real estate in Nashville. (laughs) False. I did not do that because I had, had felt no calling or sense of connection to Nashville. I had... That ministry philosophy seemed a bit odd, I mean, interesting, but it was like, where did that come from in my mind? I filed it away as that was weird. And then, sometime later, I heard from a friend of mine who's from Nashville about a network of home churches in Nashville. I mean, it was like, when he said it, I was just like, what are you talking about? And so I actually connected with, I reached out to that church and just said, I feel no sense that I need to come there or anything, but this seems like too odd of a coincidence to leave out there. So I connected them and then nothing happened. It went nowhere. And now I'm telling you about it. And that's the story. That's the story of my dream. So here's, here's the point. God won't expect you to discern his will for your life by interpreting an obscure dream. And just like with Joseph, God's plan, which was revealed in his dream, was to raise him up, to have his family come and bow to him, which we will see later in Genesis. Joseph's part to play in the dream, how does he make this will of God come about? He gets thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And what role does his brothers play in making God's will come to pass? Actively opposing it, being, trying really hard to make it not happen is how they make it happen. So I can speak for myself, um, and I think this is probably true of some of you. I've lived my life too much in fear of a wrong step or a missed opportunity, and I've lived not enough in bold trust that God is good and sovereign even over my missteps. I don't know. Can I get a witness? (laughs) And so may we as God's people ask for dreams. May we expect that God may be gracious enough to answer that prayer With a yes, he may give us dreams. And may we not be embarrassed to share our dreams with one another, to ask for wisdom in interpreting them. And I just pray now, Lord, do that among us. So as we move on, the next few verses tell us that Joseph's brothers were sheep herding somewhere near Shechem. Jacob sent Joseph to check on his brothers. And this seems to be a job that fell to Joseph from time to time, probably the occasion for his earlier bad report. So Joseph wanders around Shechem, but he doesn't find his brothers there. And a man sees him wandering around, and he says that he overheard Joseph's brothers saying they were going to go on to Dothan, about another 15 miles. So Joseph goes on to Dothan to look for his brothers there. 
So I just want to flag up something. If we can imagine this is like, we'll put a little dog ear here, that when you come across odd details in a text, it's worth just noting. That's odd. Why did the writer tell us these things? Did we need to know that Joseph first went to Shechem and kind of wandered around, but then a man found him, and then he went on to Dothan? Remember that these ancient authors didn't like to waste words for a couple reasons. It wasn't like they just had paper and pen lying around. Um, Parchment was difficult to come by, and scrolls were only a certain length. And so you'll notice like a lot of books, even some books were broken into two parts. They would be about a scroll's length. So when you find details like that, it's good to at least flag them up. And so let's just note right now that we have some odd details in this text. And let's continue the story. Joseph is approaching his brothers, and let's pick up from there in verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he, he, Reuben, might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it couple observations here. First, there is a special kind of groupthink that happens when we get into groups and do evil together. (laughs) Simply put, people doing evil in groups is different from people doing evil alone. So we don't know from this text how many of Joseph's brothers are there, but we know that there are several. We know that Reuben and Judah are there. Now one thing that that I can tell you because I'm a person and you probably know this too, is that there were some of Joseph's brothers who hated him to their core, and they spoke up first. Let's just kill him and throw him into a pit. There are some of them who are annoyed with him. Maybe they even hated him, but they didn't want to kill him. Like, like Reuben, I mean, he's our brother. Let's not kill him. Let's throw him in the pit instead. But there are some in the group who are probably thinking, I don't don't see what's so bad about Joseph. But group evil doesn't come around to a consensus so that the most evil voices are tempered or mitigated by the more reasonable voices. And what we see happen in this case is that the most extreme voice starts out, let's kill him. And then Reuben, the oldest, says, let's not kill him, let's just leave him to die. He's our brother, after all. I mean, it should be absurd, right? I mean, this, this reasoning is, is, is crazy. Reuben's plan, though, is to come back later and then restore Joseph to his father. Reuben wants to be the hero of the story. Now, a couple chapters ago, we read that Reuben had lay with, had sex with, Bilhah, one of his father's concubines. Reuben has fallen out of favor with his, with his father. So it's conjecture here, but I think it's a good conjecture that Reuben sees an opportunity to win back his father's affection by saving the life of his favorite son. Meanwhile, my assumption is that Nephtali and Zerubbalan are sheepishly sitting by, letting it all play out because they fear opposing their brothers. Notice in this passage, too, the irony of what the brothers say. Then let's see what comes of his dreams. So we've already noted that their opposition to God's plan is a part of God bringing about his plan. There's an Old Testament scholar, John Salehammer, who says it this way, the dream is the catalyst for their violence, but it achieves the result of fulfilling the dream in the end. There's so much irony in this passage. In fact, all throughout Genesis, Better than any Shakespeare tragedy. It's so good. So they don't kill him. They throw Joseph into an empty cistern. And then what? So let's keep reading. 
The next thing says, then they sat down to eat. So real nice, right? They've thrown their little brother into a pit to die and they sit down to eat. The callousness of their evil is both astonishing and it is typical. How quickly evil can become as mundane as eating lunch. I mean, we sit down over a cup of noodles to see what's on TV. Oh, wars, rumors of wars, death, pestilence, just... I went, uh, when I was in college, The Passion of the Christ came out. I went with some friends to see The Passion of the Christ in the theater. As the movie begins, I hear some crinkling. And I look over to, to my, in front of me, to my left, and I see a woman who has pulled an Arby's sandwich out of her purse <laughs> and is opening the sandwich to begin eating her Arby's sandwich. I don't know if you've seen The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> it is stomach-turning. She's, yeah. So evil can become mundane, and that's what we see here. Genesis 42 gives us a little insight into uh, the situation that we're reading about in 37. Genesis 42, verses 21 and 22 say this. This is the brothers. They are before Jacob, but they don't know that uh, he can understand them. They think he's an Egyptian, And they're speaking to each other. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So the brothers in 37 They see the distress of Joseph's soul, is what he says later. They hear his begging cries. So if you could picture it, engage your imagination. Imagine that you're there among the brothers. Joseph, this 17-year-old kid, is in a pit crying out, and he's in anguish, and his brothers sit down to eat. The brothers ignore Joseph's anguish, his cries for help. They eat their lunch. And I want to show you or try to show you that this issue of hospitality to those in need is a major theme in this passage and in the whole book of Genesis, we could say in the whole Bible, God's people are called to hear the cries of the oppressed and to bring a blessing to them. So I'm indebted to a scholar named Alistair Roberts uh, for his work showing some of these textual links within the book of Genesis things I would have never seen that are clear once you see them. So I want to read a little bit from an essay that he wrote called True Hospitality and the Immigration Debate. It's a long article, but I would recommend it. So listen as I read a bit of this for the textual clues that link link the... So it's saying here in this story of Joseph, Hagar and Ishmael. These textual clues link these two. Also note the things that I flagged up earlier, some of these odd bits about wandering and going to, to Dothan and the wrong, uh, going on to Dothan. So this is from Alistair Roberts. In Genesis 37, a passage deeply redolent with the memory of Hagar and Ishmael, Joseph is cast out of the family by brothers who feel threatened by his presence and the favor that he enjoys with their father. Hagar and Ishmael are sent out by Abraham with a bread and a skin of water put on their shoulder. Joseph is sent out by Jacob and goes to Shechem. Now what you can't see, I guess I could have put it on the screen just thinking of that, is that shoulder and Shechem are nearly identical in the Hebrew. Those two words linked together. Hagar and Ishmael wander in the wilderness of Beersheba. Joseph wanders in the fields of Shechem. There is no water in the skin, and Hagar casts Ishmael down beneath one of the shrubs. There is no water in the wilderness pit into which Joseph's brothers cast him. Hagar removes herself from the lad Ishmael so that she will not see his death. Joseph's brothers abandon him in the pit in the wilderness so that they will not have to kill him directly, and no one will see his death. It should come as no surprise to the attentive reader that the Ishmaelites, who take the expelled brother down into Egypt 
it should come as no surprise to the attentive reader that it is the Ishmaelites who take the expelled brother down to Egypt with them. Joseph is entering into the experience of his granduncle Ishmael. While Hagar and Ishmael may have been considered a long-forgotten skeleton in the family's closet, God has not forgotten it. That was a mouthful, but hopefully you see that some of these links, the patterns of things are linking us. So if you, if you imagine yourself as an ancient Israelite uh, reading this again and again, studying it, these patterns begin to emerge and it would be clear. So what? What does it mean if we read Joseph as being linked up with Hagar? So Robert, Roberts puts it this way. Once they have had the experience of being strangers in Hagar's land of Egypt... They will, be, they will better understand why they need to treat the stranger with hospitality and justice. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 10, 19 that says, Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So you may know that there is no little dissension in the church right now about the issues of justice. You may not know that. If you didn't, there is no little dissension which is a way of saying a lot of dissension. <laughs> so this topic could easily take a whole sermon or it could take a series of sermons, but in this text, it is a part and not the whole. So I want to make a few observations before moving on. First, we see that our own experiences help us empathize with others. God's command to Israel to love the stranger is based on Israel's own experience as strangers. Now, this could mean all kinds of different things in our context, that what we experience helps us understand and empathize with others who experience it. But I can say one thing that it means for all of us. As Christians, we should love the lost. Love the wicked, evildoers in our world. Because we too were lost, wicked, evildoers. Remember the parable of the unforgiving debtor. We have been forgiven much. Amen? The second thing we see here is that groups can make us numb to injustice around us or they can help us see injustice. So I've already mentioned this about the group dynamic of evil. I just want to say this, that Christians should not need to go to our favorite pundits or to social media to see how we feel about injustice. The primary group for all of us is not Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, black, or white. We are the church. Because the church is made up of folks from every tribe, tongue, and nation, our life in the church brings us face to face, face to face with people whose cries for help we can be responsible for. The third point is that digital media, or what we often call technology, has a telescoping effect on our view of morality and injustice. Imagine, if you can, looking through a telescope. What do you see? Something far away comes into focus. Now imagine, as you're looking through that telescope, someone walks right in front of you. They're fuzzy, out of focus, right? This is the situation that I'm describing. Social media, but technology has a telescoping effect on our view of morality and injustice. So given the situation, knowing about, caring about conflict in the Middle East or labor conditions in China, genocide in Africa, corruption in Latin America, become in focus, forefront. But increasingly, we don't know our neighbors. And it's difficult to get to know our neighbors. Now, I'm not saying, please don't hear me saying that we can't call evil evil that's far away. What I am saying is that we should be able to put down our phones long enough to see the anguish of those who are right in front of us and close enough for us to be responsible for them. That word responsible, if we take it at its face value, right, it's able to respond. We can help our neighbor when we hear their cries. Joseph is in the pit right there. Literally, one of the brothers could have just walked over and helped him out. They were able to respond to him. They could hear his cries. May we as a church, Christ the King, but the church in the world, repent of the ways we have been conformed to the ways of the world when it comes to our thinking 
about our call to hear the cries of those around us. Lord, help us. So we pick up the story at verse 25. It says this, And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm sorry, then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is, is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 seckles of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So the brothers see a caravan of merchants on their way to Egypt, and they make a new plan. So this time it's Judah who speaks up, and we get this wonderful line. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Again, we see this twisted reasoning we saw with Reuben, here again with Judah. Now, I know this looks bad, selling your brother into slavery in our day, but in this ancient Near East culture, it was still bad. (laughs) It's always been bad. I mean, he says, guys, look, this is our own brother. He says, our own flesh. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. Now, in the very law of God... Deuteronomy 24.7 says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So there's no question. It's an evil thing. God uses for his purposes. There's, an, uh, there's another awkward sort of textual thing that we come to in this section. Maybe you heard it as I was reading. Who is actually doing the buying and the selling of Joseph? There are two groups of people, and maybe three listed here, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. So we noticed a couple of things. Um, We've been seeing this over and over again in Genesis, is the sibling rivalry. We see it from the moment that Cain killed Abel. Sibling rivalry is, is, is an ongoing theme, and so we remember that not that long ago, just a few generations, Ishmael is Abraham's son born to Hagar, the Egyptian. And that, that matters, I think. They're taking him to Egypt. And what about the Midianites? Midian, does anybody remember, was the son of? Bible trivia time. Abraham, born to his wife Keturah after Sarah died. So we have two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Midian, and these are their descendants. So these are kinfolk, distant cousins to these boys. So there are a couple of ways to read what's happening in this text, and I think they're both faithful to the text. I think it's, it's, a, it's a difficult text to really nail down. The ESV translation, which we read from, leads to this first reading, I think. So I'm going to read this again and try to hear what, just on the surface, what does it sound like is happening. It says, Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Doesn't actually sound like the brothers are selling him at all, does it? The way that reads is these Midianites come by, they pull him out of the pit, some Ishmaelites happen to be going by, and they sell, the Midianites sell Joseph to the... Ishmaelites. Get my group straight. So uh, this reading fits kind of nicely with what happens next. Reuben comes back to the pit and finds Joseph missing. He's, when, we read this. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Now, of course, it would be normal, uh, just in the normal course of life, especially as a shepherd, to go off for a while and to, to need to go attend to something and come back. So we don't need this interpretation to make sense of that text, but it does fit pretty well. The other way to read it is that there's one group that's referred to in two different ways. This is a pretty popular way to see it, that the Ishmaelites and the Midianites are the same group. There is some biblical support for this. Uh, Judges 8.24 is referring to Midianites 
And then it said they had gold rings because they were Ishmaelites. So that, at some point in history, these two groups seem to become, uh, Ishmaelite is like a header, an umbrella term that fits within it, at least this group, Midianites. So this is interesting textual stuff. But however we interpret this passage doesn't change how we read what God is up to. And we should notice again the irony that the descendants of Ishmael, the son of the Egyptian slave who was in the house of Abraham, who was oppressed by Sarah, take Joseph to be a slave in Egypt to experience that same experience of being a slave in a foreign land. This is, this is a, 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 an important thing in the pattern that we see in Genesis. So let's keep reading. This is verse 31. It says, They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors. And I want to pause. There are all kinds of, like, Jesus bells should be going off in your head as you read that passage. A robe dipped in blood? Your Jesus bells ringing? Let's keep reading. It says, Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall not go, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And thus ends our text for today. Personally, I wish I could go on to chapter 38. Everyone's favorite chapter of Genesis. Read that this afternoon. You'll know why that's funny. I want to uh, conclude today by seeing what this passage shows us about Jesus. We know by conviction that the whole Bible is about Jesus one way or another, right? That is clearly on display here in this story of Joseph. So the New Testament opens with another Joseph who dreams dreams. We read this in Matthew 1, this is 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And two more times in Matthew chapter 2, we read that God spoke to Joseph in dreams. So we have Joseph, a dreamer, opening the New Testament. God revealed a plan to Joseph, the son of Jacob, in a dream. And likewise, here at the birth of Christ, God reveals his plan to Joseph, Jesus' daddy, in a dream. So like Joseph, Jesus' brothers, the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and high priests, hated him and plotted to kill him. Like Joseph, Jesus' brothers sold him to a foreign nation where he was falsely accused, imprisoned, where he would have his robe ripped from his back, where he would be separated, cut off from his father. Finally, we see that like Joseph, Jesus would be exalted to a high place where he could feed the hungry nations who come to him starving and near death. But unlike Joseph, we see that Jesus' rise wasn't sort of this through the ranks of power. Jesus' rise was his humiliation and death on a cross. By taking the pain and the shame and ultimately by going through death, Jesus was raised. Now, having gone through death, having gone through resurrection, right now, Jesus has ascended to a throne that is far higher than Joseph's. Now he wears a crown. Now he has a scepter with which he rules the nations, the Psalms tell us. And he wears a robe dipped in blood. He has had vengeance on the wicked. Now church, we live in a world of famine today. We are surrounded by starving people. 
May God give us eyes to see this, that when we look around, people may look healthy and happy on Instagram, but if we could see inside, we would see a poverty and a malnourishment that would be tragic. People are starving. May we see, have clarity to see that as we as a culture focus more and more on caring for ourselves, the more we hate ourselves. The more we seek satisfaction and things that we can buy, the more we're unfilled, unfulfilled. The food of our culture, it's like food that as you eat it, it makes you more hungry. It's like drinking water that makes you more thirsty. But hear this good news that Jesus is our true Joseph. Jesus is the bread of heaven, the water that will satisfy forever. So Jesus is the true Joseph. Hear this and be encouraged that all of the enemies, all that the enemies of God planned for evil could not change God's plan, the plan that was revealed to Joseph in a dream. What his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. The same is true of the dream that Joseph, Jesus' father, dreamed, that his baby boy Jesus would save his people from their sins. So Jesus, the true Joseph, went through all of these things that Joseph went through. Hated and sold by his brothers. His robe ripped from him. He's taken into custody by a foreign power, falsely accused, which we'll see next week with Joseph in Potiphar's house. Ultimately being raised to a place where he can feed the world. But the difference, the big difference between Jesus and Joseph is that Jesus himself is our bread, our spiritual food. He is our living water. We feast upon his life. So those who ate Joseph's food, he saved many lives, but those who ate his food got hungry again and died. But when we feast on the life of Jesus, we are satisfied. May, may that thought bring us to a time of communion, a fellowship around this table where we will eat the body and blood of Christ. I want to remind us that at this table, children of God are given new clothes, what the Bible calls garments of salvation. See this in Isaiah 61.10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It's, It's a wonderful thing, right? Jacob has his favorite son and he gives him a special robe. All of God's children get a special robe, the garments of salvation, which makes us equal before the Father. We all come on the same basis. We bring sin. He gives us grace. My sin may have more consequences than yours. It may look dirtier or whatever. We all come needing grace and he gives us grace. So at this table, we sit across from brothers and sisters from all different tribes, tongues, and nation. This table is the Lord's table and he opens the the way. He shows hospitality to us, strangers. He opens the door to us, strangers, and welcomes us to his table. May the barriers of separation between us be broken down at this table as well that brothers and sisters in Christ would see our common need for grace and our need to love each other. Um, just as we've seen, in the end, all the, the brothers hate each other. At this point, if we just pause the story, it is not looking good for Israel. But it is all a part of what God is doing in the nation to bring about reconciliation, to lead to Christ, by whom we all are welcome. It's good news. Um, I am going to pray. Ryan will Uh, the band will come up and uh, sing a song. Let me sort of invite you to stand now. Please stand. As I've said, this is the Lord's table. It is called the Lord's Supper. He invites all of those who have trusted him for salvation. If you are a Christian today, begin examining your heart. Remember the gospel. Remember that we are accepted by God's grace and grace alone, that nothing else can account for us being able to come and share this meal. Be reconciled, reminded when Paul writes his letter to 1 Corinthians, there are divisions at the table, that the the rich are getting there early and just eating and drinking, and by the time that the poor folks are getting there, it's all gone. Paul admonishes them for this. 
that the symbol of unity around the table has become a sign of division. Take this opportunity now to consider where there's broken fellowship between you and a brother or sister in Christ and resolve in your heart um, to, to to see reconciliation. It may mean that as you're coming up or as you, even right now you pull out your phone and send a text, pursue unity in the church. The table calls us to it week after week. Um, if you're with us today and you're not a Christian, I'd ask that you not come and take the meal. The call for you is to take Christ by faith, to remember that your sin, or to acknowledge maybe for the first time, your sin has divided you from God, that, that fellowship, you have no fellowship with God, that it is broken by sin. It is the thing that all of us experience all of us who are, who are Christians have experienced that, that acknowledgement that our sin separated us from fellowship with God and that we needed forgiveness in Christ. Um, I know that it's not as if you have never considered those things. You have doubts, you have concerns, you, you have reasons, maybe even uh, anger about the church and about what, how you view God. Um, God isn't scared of those questions and we aren't either. Allow us uh, to have those conversations with you. You can use the Connect card. We'd love to reach out to you to have that conversation. Uh, You can also talk to a Christian you know, talk to a pastor or someone on the welcome team. Be invited into life of Christ. Have forgiveness. uh, Have forgiveness today. It's a good invitation. Those of you who are coming, take as much time as you need. Uh, Examine your heart when you're ready. The table's open. We'll sing the song together. Take uh, bread and a cup. Go back to your seat. We'll take together after, uh, after the song. Lord, we thank you for this story in Genesis. Thank you that it is a wonderful testament to your authorship, Lord. <laughs> that, that such a wonderful and coherent story was written by men throughout millennia, but it tells one story so wonderfully. A story of people who rebelled against you and were sent into exile, but were brought back by Jesus and his work on the cross And that at all of these points throughout the story of your people, if we paused, it seems hopeless. It seems like your people are divided or the seed of of woman which we're following is about to be stamped out. But God, it's all to show your purpose and your glory. It's all to show how wonderful you are, that it's not up to our strength, it's not up to our good planning or our goodness that you bring about your plan. And how how good that is for all of us today because we were rebels to your word and your will, and you turned us around. You shone a light in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for that wonderful truth. And I ask now as we come to the table that you would remind us that we were rebels against you. Remind us that we are a people with no name. We were not a people, but you have called us and made us your own people. You have given us a name. God, may we own and wear our identity as church, called out people for the purposes of the kingdom, to live your kingdom, so that all of our other allegiances would fall so far short that they would be secondary and tertiary, that they would, that they would fall to, to unimportance, God, that we would be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be true now, even as we come forward. Help us, Lord, to be reconciled. I pray for a revival in the church today that we would put away foolish things. God, that we would stop playing with mud pies and we would go enjoy that vacation at sea which you have called us to. Lord, encourage us today as we take this meal that it is our food. It sustains us. That just as Joseph Joseph saved many people by feeding them, you give us food that fulfills drink of which we will never, when we drink, we will never thirst again. May that be true today, Lord, as we take this meal and as we go to be your lights in all the corners of the city. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.